there, fitness enthusiasts and goal getters. Welcome to the 8020 Podcast, where we believe in breaking down the science of health and fitness while keeping it 20% lighthearted and fun. I'm your host, Coach Haley, the founder of Unstressed Athletics, a personal trainer, paramedic, and firefighter. In this podcast, we're going to explore the 80%, the hard facts, the science-backed strategies, and the proven methods that lead to success in health, fitness, and achieving your goals. But hey, we're not all about serious business here. We've reserved a solid 20% for the lighter side of things. Fun anecdotes, quirky stories, and maybe a few fitness jokes thrown in for good measure. Each week, I'm bringing in the experts, those who've mastered the art of healthy living, crushed their fitness goals, and have the knowledge to prove it. We're talking nutrition gurus, fitness pros, and goal-setting champions. Whether you're a seasoned gym goer or just getting started on your fitness journey, the 8020 Podcast has something for everyone. So join me every week as we unpack the 80%, have a laugh with the 20%, and collectively work towards a healthier, happier version of ourselves. Get ready to discover the perfect balance between science and smiles. This is the 8020 Podcast. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 8020. Um, I'm here today with Andrew Coates. Um, I actually used to train with him way, way, way back in the day when I first started doing uh, weight training, which is kind of cool. But he is a graduate from the Memorial University of Newfoundland with a Bachelor of Commerce. Um, he has 19,000 plus hours of client coaching hours and counting, which is pretty cool. And he has a fluffy black cat named Ozzy, which if you follow his social media, you know, um, he's the star of his Instagram. Thanks for coming on today, Andrew. How are you? Haley, how are you doing? Uh, wonderful. Thank you for having me. We've known each other a very, very long time. Yes, definitely. And it's really been fun to watch you kind of progress through your uh, training and writing articles and, and all of that kind of aspects of your career. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast here today. Um, today, we're going to be talking about common injuries in athletes and kind of some interesting studies that you have found and, and how to train around injuries. So maybe just starting from the basics, what are some common injuries you see in athletes? I, I want to sort of take this in a slightly different direction. Maybe we can tease out because it, I think... It's, it's tricky to identify what we would call common injuries. Like if you take a specific sport, and by the way, like I don't consider myself, uh, you know, a high level strength and conditioning coach, right? I have worked with some some athletes for sure, but I like to look at the, you know, everyday person, you know, they're, they're athletic within their goals. Anyway, so it's not like, okay, well, we see a lot of knee injuries. We see a lot of low, low back injuries. There's a lot of complexity and nuance, those things. But let's just challenge a misconception people have about injuries. So I think most people step into gym thinking, well, I want to hire a trainer because I want to make sure I'm doing the form right. Now, there's value in doing the form right. If you're choosing good exercises and if you're executing those ex exercises well, you are targeting the right muscles. I, and while I'm not as comfortable saying there's no relationship between form and injury risk, which is a bit of a narrative within a physical therapy community that I think are very evidence-based. I think they're very smart. And I think there's some truth there. But what really presents injury risk is a whole bunch of other things. If you go in and you are not sleeping well, your injury risk increases. If you are dehydrated, your injury risk increases. If you have previous injury history, a specific type of injury, that, that is the best predictor of a future injury, right? That, that, that tissue is definitely different post-injury. Um, 
if you are using too much load, if you are not effectively controlling load through movement, then I think you're going to increase your risk of injury. And that's where form usually presents because if you're using too much load, you're not in control of that, that load, then it shows up as poor form. So the form is not so much a cause, the form is sort of a byproduct of this other environment that you, you've sort of set yourself up for. So why does this matter? We just want to dispel people's fear around injury, right? If someone walks into a gym and they're very sensitized to pain or injury, well, especially the pain thing, because injury, like structural injury and your experience of pain are not always one-to-one. -one. We have people, you stuff them in, MRIs are not as gold standard as we think. They're still a very useful diagnostic, but you could have a portion of the population walking around with partial or even full thickness tears of a rotator cuff tendon and be totally asymptomatic and pain-free. We can have people who experience low back pain. It's a common one. And there's no presence of a structural injury there. But to them, that pain is real. So if you go into these situations experiencing or fearing pain or sensitized to pain, then what's going to end up happening? You're going to experience pain because you're your brain is conditioned to, if I do this, I will feel pain. So you expect it, right? Yeah. Pain is a really uh, tricky one to quantify because uh, there's no real measurement of it, right? And I think in talking with a bunch of different physios and, and doing kind of a bit of my own research as well, you're totally right. You can have a, a herniation. Tons of people have herniated backs and it doesn't correlate necessarily to how they're feeling. I have a client right now that has full ACL tears, but he's still moving properly and doesn't want to get the surgery to fix it because he's functionally able to do everything right now. And it doesn't make sense for him. I think the main thing that I found was that kind of exactly what you were saying, injury, a lot of the time is related to this overuse, poor recovery type thing. And often the time it's not an acute injury that a beginners are very often worried about. And so I think that making sure that you are recovered, getting enough sleep, making sure that you're hydrated are all awesome. And it's not something that should stop beginners from diving into weight training. Your example about the ACL injury is a phenomenal one. So this is a concept that I love. Dr. Uh, Muscle Doc Jordan Shallow, doctor of chiropractic, very smart guy, probably my favorite resource when it comes to biomechanics, training anatomy, et cetera. And he talks about structure and function. And the body is a very dynamic thing, right? It's not, humans are not super fragile. We can sometimes feel that way, but we're actually pretty robust and resilient in the face of different forces. I mean, just look at kids. Kids, you can throw them off of, you know, off of roofs into whatever, and they'll just bounce off of stuff. I don't recommend doing that, but like, <laughs> I remember jumping off of our roof as a kid into snowbanks and shit. We were fine. Falling off of bikes, Blah, blah, blah. Right. I was a free range kid. I'm 45. I grew up in rural Newfoundland. Most of the kids that I knew now, again, I don't endorse this, but most of the kids I knew had snowmobiles, preteen chainsaws, shotguns, and various other stuff like this. There's always the horror story of this stuff, but all those kids turn out more or less. Okay. All right. Off the side quest, back to the main quest. Um, where were we? Structure and function. So in the presence of injury, the body's pretty dynamic. So you will learn how to out-function structure. The ACL, a, a fully torn ACL is a good example. There are people walking around in society have no idea they are missing an ACL. Don't have one. You have, for the demands of high-level sport and someone who's fairly young, 
that's a good candidate for an ACL reconstruction surgery. But if you get an older individual who's not worried about playing a lot of sports, and if they're otherwise quite strong, so what, what, what's the function of the ACL, right? It keeps your femur from gliding on your tibia. I don't, I don't want to get too technical here. But what, what's another muscular structure that actually does that? And actually, it's the primary one for you, your hamstrings, right? So if you have really strong hamstrings and you can still, I'll come to this concept in a second about what you can train. But if you have really strong strong hamstrings, most people can probably function without, uh, you know, an ACL. Uh, my my former client, um, a, a young coach, Bailey Lau, Bailey plays pretty high level soccer locally and Bailey's freaky strong. So Bailey did tear her ACL playing soccer, but she didn't realize it. She didn't believe it. And she works with a brilliant physical therapist. I'll refer to, I'll shout out Brendan DeForge. He's amazing. And he's like the ACL guy. And, you know, he took her through the whole process, uh, rehabilitation, you know, made sure she was good for surgery. She did get the surgery to play soccer, but outside of playing soccer, given how strong she is, she could very well have gone the rest of her life without this ACL. And there now is some stuff, I'm not an expert in this, but there now is some indication that we're seeing fully torn ACLs actually healing, um, which is sort of a surprise. To so I, I what are the best things you can possibly do when it comes to dealing with an injury is to still figure out, is to stay in the gym, okay? Is to figure out what you can do. So there's a lot of things that is like nagging, painful injuries. I've been lifting a long time. Both of my shoulders now give me some trouble. I recently hurt my right knee. But I figured out an inventory of exercise that I can do pain-free that allows me to continue to stay strong, to, to maintain muscle, to maintain my metabolic health, and to maintain all the mood, mental health benefits of exercise. That stuff's crazy important. So being able to find an inventory of stuff that you can do is essential. So uh, one of my favorite things, and I've got a big resource, and if anybody wants it, I will literally send it to you. It's published on Kabuki Strength. And... It's, it's on a phenomenon called cross-education, basically training with an injured limb. Now, one of the times you've trained with me at different junctures and different pockets, and one of those times you came to me, and if I recall correctly, you had a broken wrist, right? I had a broken, yeah, I had a broken hand. So same, hand. same kind of idea, but yeah, I could not use my one hand, <laughs> yep. unfortunately. So do you remember what we did a lot of? Well, we, we looked for different uh, ways that we could stay in the gym. We would train, obviously, we would train the other side that wasn't yep. injured. Get into that. Yep. And then we would try to do um, different ranges of motion that we could accomplish with the hand that was injured. And we would try to do different motions that would still um, work the joint, um, the two joints above, to be able to mm -hmm. work on all of those different muscles without affecting the actual hand. So we use the safety bar a bit because a, it wasn't easy for you to grip a barbell. So if you recall, instead of being able to do a Romanian deadlift, which you weren't able to do to grip both hands of a barbell, we actually had to do safety bar good mornings, appropriately loaded, right? So you're able to hold on to that with one hand, kind of loosely grip it with the other, and we were good to go. We did, if I remember correctly, because it's been a while, but these things sort of stand out in my mind. Uh, safety bar, I think Bulgarian squats, because again, we didn't have to, it would have been very hard for you to hold on to two dumbbells, dumbbells in a split squat, right? And then there was some things like a cable pullover. Some people call them straight arm pull downs for lats because that was a lot easier for your hand to be able to accommodate. And, I, and it's funny, like 
I, I knew the hand was immobilized and I, and I thought I had it in my mind that it was a wrist break versus a quote, a handbrake. But I remember very specifically some of the tactics we used. Anyway, and then another old client of mine, I recently ran into him. It was really cool to see that he did well. Uh, it was after he was training with me, but he tore his bicep, uh, catching a long pass on hockey. Rip bicep, holy shit. So anyway, what do we do? So let's explain the research. You would think that if you train, you've you got a broken arm and you can't train it. And you go and train your good arm, you're going to have this one giant Popeye jacked limb and you're going to have this one shriveled up atrophy limb and it doesn't work out that way. If anything, there's this cool neurological phenomenon that better spares the muscle thickness and strength of that injured limb, right? Now, if you're a elite level power lifter and you rip a quad tendon clean off, right? And, and that stuff happens. It's rare, but that stuff happens. A, you're probably not going to be able to get to the gym right away anyway. There's going to be a bit of gap. A bit of a gap. There is going to be some atrophy, right? Very high levels. Turning around and doing a whole bunch of leg extensions, single leg leg press, is not going to keep you with the same amount of muscle with a catastrophic injury. But again, those sort of broken femur, those things are kind of rare. But humans do bounce back. If you've properly rehabilitated it, recovered, what have you, and you get back into training appropriately, you have good physical therapy, good rehab you'd be surprised how resilient and robust people can be. But either way, this, this thing, and everybody somewhere along the lines, no matter how diligent you are, you can't prevent injuries. Stuff's gonna ache, stuff's gonna hurt, stuff's not gonna feel great. And it's just knowing, okay, what can I do today? Adjusting load often can be a good tactic. Another tactic, and again, this one really comes from Jordan Shallow's philosophy is, all right, so let's say a barbell squat just isn't feeling great, back's a little bit cranky, whatever, okay sit in the leg press, get stable, right? Grip onto it, get really stable. You have all this external reference and stability. So what do you got to do? Put your feet on it and crank it out. And you can probably still crank up the intensity, the load pretty high as because there's also not this demand on your, your core stability on all these other sort of things in a squat. And maybe the answer on that day, you know, if you're a coach is to, all right, we're not going to worry about squatting you today, but we're not going to go super easy on you. We're just going to jam you in a leg press, <clears throat> leg extension, and really push you. So they walk out going, oh, wow, I had a really good workout. But it's just figuring out what doesn't hurt. So these are some of the philosophies and tactics that I take with my clientele. And I think, and I'm guessing a lot of people listening are enthusiasts. It's going to give you a philosophy. If you're just not feeling your best, how to go in, still get a great workout out of it, instead of saying, well, because we all know those people, don't be one of them. It's like, oh my God, the, the moon is in the wrong house of this. And, you know, oh, I, I checked my my biorhythms on my aura ring or whatever, and my recovery score is crap. I, I, I better not go to the gym. Just go do something that feels good. You're going to feel better regardless, right? And I'm not this person who thinks, shit, you only got four hours sleep. You need to go to the gym. No, like, I would always want someone to choose sleep over like doing that extra hour of cardio in the morning. Totally. I think that um, when it comes to like a coach and, and developing programming and, and stuff like this, that actually it's, it's fairly easy to build a hypertrophy based programming, but it's all of the recovery, the daily life stuff, being able to uh, tell your client, no, you should be sleeping instead of going into the gym versus uh, you know, going in and pushing yourself that little extra mile. I think that's really what makes a coach a really good coach is being able to navigate all those things. And 
Uh, when it comes to injury, it's even more obvious um, your knowledge base because you have to really be, in, be able to manipulate around the joints and ones that aren't working. Um, and so that, that study that you looked at where it was looking at one side of the body um, training actually impacting the other one, I think it, it refers to something called mirroring, um, just uh, neurologically, where uh, the neurons do the phenomenon where they're they're actually engaging when you're the other side of your body is contracting. Is that right? That's, I, that's the belief. So on a, on a very fundamental level, it's not 100% concrete understood. What is the biological mechanism that's creating this? The overwhelming belief is that it's a neurological innervation. The word I've chosen, I, I don't know if this shows up in the, in the, the research, but I just like to give up nerve innervation. So it's innervating the muscle. And if that muscle's innervated in some way, it's less likely to atrophy. And I, and I ultimately think it's, that's the best way to think about it through the, the lens of the general user. Just to summarize in terms of when you do have an injury, I think the main things we touched on was limiting potentially your range of motion to where it may or may not hurt, uh, training the other side whenever you can, mm -hmm. uh, using exercise variations that don't uh, irritate your injury. And a lot of times that refers to maybe getting a little bit more stable in a machine versus a free weight. Was there anything you wanted to add in that just before we hop into more of the injury prevention side of things? Yeah. And if you're dealing with an injury, let's say in your case where we had your broken hand, it was a really great yeah. opportunity for you to like just go crazy on your legs. Bailey, in my example, with a torn ACL, she went really hard on pull-ups and bench press because those things are challenging for her. So she directed a lot of her recovery, a lot of her training volume and recovery into these things that you know, comparatively, or, or at least in her mind, were weak points. Bodybuilders will do this all the time. If you have an injury that you're recovering from, okay, cool. Let's actually bring up other weak lagging body parts and train those extra hard because there's going to be, there's, there's local recovery of individual muscles, joints, but then there's the, your global capacity for recovery, <laughs> your body, you know, all your systems. And yes, you definitely want to make sure that you're eating enough sleeping enough, hydrating enough to recover from an injury. There is a recovery aspect to it, but you can direct a lot of your training volume and your, your overall ability to recover into just getting stronger, bigger muscles uh, for other stuff. I love that. Uh, turning something that's maybe not great for you into more of a silver lining and working on weaknesses that you would never really work on. Um, in the gym. It would be a great opportunity to, to work on some of those weak points because there's all exercises that we hate doing in the gym. So if it, that's not part of your injury, it, it's a fantastic time to focus on that. The other thing I really wanted to touch on a bit is how you use your uh, training methodology to prevent injury. I know we talked a little bit about recovery, but I'm talking more about just specific, maybe like stabilization or different planes of movement, etc. What do you implement into your programming to help prevent that? All right, so let's let's make it explicit. We can't prevent injuries. Like you alluded to, we cannot prevent them. The other thing that I didn't say when we talked about the risk of injuries is, is chance, right? Luck, stuff happens. I have seen people do stuff in the gym that should break them and they're fine, they're resilient, right? And then you get this small, like anybody listening, you probably, my knee, I, I mentioned, and I believe it was a minor, tear of my lateral meniscus. I did that by taking a step in my basement and pivoting slightly on the knee and all of a sudden feeling something weird. Okay. My shoulders, I seem to do more harm to my shoulders when 
I'm reaching behind my back and trying to scratch my back than any heavily loaded anything. I don't, in fact, I don't believe I've ever suffered a, ooh, ow, acute injury under heavy load in a gym. I've been doing that a long time, but it's just other random stuff. Okay, so this stuff happens. It's part of life. The alternative is to stay on your couch wrapped in bubble wrap and watch your bones, your mental health, your muscle all atrophy and degenerate to the point of pure misery. And that is a guaranteed recipe for pain, illness, and a terrible life. So guess what? The alternative, stay strong, accept the fact that, yeah, you might get hurt along the way. Most of those injuries are going to be fairly comparatively minor. And we've gone over lots of strategies to work around. So there's that. Okay, so for someone who's fairly new, it's it's really important to consider the fact that one of the things you're trying to develop early on is skill, okay? So your skill actually becomes a barrier to maximal output on almost anything. So your first goal is going to be developing the skill of an exercise. And I like to think of, all right, earlier in a workout, we're going to do skill-based stuff. So a walking lunge, which I actually think is a quite advanced exercise, requires a lot more skill than sitting in a leg extension machine. A, a deadlift is a lot more skill-based than sitting in a cable pull-down. So what do we do? Early on, we're not going to be trying to maximize output on skill-based exercise. We're going to be focusing on learning those skills, and someone is going to fail on that exercise based on form rather than a pure technical inability to push more load, right? So if we look at it that way, then that's a good way to approach the skill-based stuff. Then we can turn around and sit in something that's stable like a pec deck fly or the leg extension or a preacher curl machine, as long as we're being reasonably responsible. And we can challenge those. We can load them up a little heavier. We can actually train those things to failure so that we even the new person has the experience of, oh, wow, that was really hard. My muscles are burning. And they can enjoy it. They can walk away from it and get the soreness out of the way early. Okay. I, but I also tend to simply say to anybody who's new to me, listen, you're brand new to me. Okay, even if someone's got a bit of experience, you're new to me. I'm learning about you. I'm learning how you move. You, I want them to appreciate the fact that you're going to get nasty sore early on. So I do want to ease you in a little bit, but we will ramp up the intensity based on your feedback fairly quickly. And I want that person who's brand new to me to say to me, hey, that was pretty good. I'm not too sore. I could have done more. And, and I prepare them for that so that they're not disappointed or thinking I went too easy on them. So that they expect that, okay, we'll up the challenge because some people want to be crushed walking up for a workout. And I don't yeah. think that's the best thing at all, right? Most people will not be able to, like anybody here listening really does need to go watch you deadlifting, like videos of you deadlifting and the other shit you're capable of. Because like Haley is absolutely super next level when it comes to strength and performance, a lot of this stuff. It's really cool to watch you. Oh, um, thanks, Andrew. <laughs> and and that's, that's through your work ethic and you know, just sheer aggression to learn. And, and, I, and I think also there's just some natural capability there. I think you just found an outlet that you, to express something that you're you're good at and then you work really, really hard to get, get great at. Not everybody's going to start that way. I remember when you started, right? You and Jetta, you guys are training yeah. with me, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> right? Um, I, I still like to listen to each person. Uh, some people are going to be very risk averse. Uh, some people are going to be like, don't give a shit. Like, let's... If we break stuff, we break stuff. I've got two 73-year-old clients, retirees, and they, they get along, um, Neil and Larry. Now, you never see video of Neil, and you always see video of Larry. Larry, just I just put him on my feed because Larry's silly strong. Like it's, it's actually kind of ridiculous what he's capable of. 
So Larry just wants to go for it. He likes water backing deadlifting. He likes doing farmer's carries until the, the handles fall out of his hands. Whereas Neil is definitely more risk averse. He's, he's not as comfortable with the idea of trying to max out stuff. So guess what? I always want to make sure that Neil's experience challenges him in ways that he feels safe while still making a big difference in his health. And he he's doing great. Whereas Larry, it's like game on, whatever, break me if you can, right? And, you know, there's always trade-offs with this stuff. Like Larry, now it didn't happen during one of our workouts. I would have like felt horrible, but Larry had a heart attack a year ago. Anyway, so, and, but what he says that his doctors say is that if he hadn't been as dedicated to training, you know, hard and maintaining his health as best as he could, you know, Larry, by his own admission, he wants to lose some weight. He knows he needs to. Um, he's a bigger man, but he he survived this. He bounced back pretty quickly. He was back in the gym training three months later. We we were careful listening to the doctor's orders. But a year later, a year after it, his doctor's like, listen, you're perfect. Like, there's no issue here. You can do whatever you want. And so we're back to pushing it pretty hard. But we've been on living on the bleeding edge of what he was allowed to do anyway. <laughs> and so Larry fully real, you know, feels like, Hey, listen, that heart attack, if I hadn't started lifting weights, training, doing what I was, would have killed him. He figures. Right. And he bounced back better than most people, especially at his age from something like that. So and, and those are the trade-offs he's willing to accept. Now he doesn't want to have heart attacks doing this sort of stuff, nor do we ever want to create that environment, but he's kind of funny. This is a slightly unrelated point, but you actually have to understand what people's philosophies are. He would rather be taken out in one shot by a big heart attack than to gradually become really sick, wither away, and, and live a very poor quality of life. That's his philosophy, right? My goal is to keep him alive and strong for as long as I possibly can, right? Whereas the other client, Neil, Neil is more, he, he, he's not as willing to accept the possibility that, that, you know, he's got something nagging. Like Larry's knees, he's, a, he's an old retired pipe fitter, plumber. So his knees have always been cranky. And yet he still likes to squat, still likes to do other stuff. And one of his knees recently has been worse. So we've had him talking to a physical therapist and we got that going on, but he's still in the gym wanting to lift anything that he can lift without pain. We modify things accordingly and he's good to go. He has no regrets whatsoever about the fact that, yeah, his, his knee got sore. I've made modifications along the way to make his knees feel better. Taking his shoes off, literally taking his shoes off made his knees feel night and day better quite a while ago. So these are the kind of things that we take into consideration. Yeah, no, that's, that is really awesome. And I love hearing those different perspectives. Um, I have a little bit of a, an added layer onto that because I do work at a cardiac clinic doing uh, actually stress tests, um, evaluating people's, you know, risks for heart attacks and, and seeing if they do have any um, parts of their heart that are damaged or maybe not getting oxygen to them. And it's interesting what you said about, and I loved the quote that you used, pure misery, if you're just sitting on the couch, you know, slowly atrophying away into nothing. Um, but I do see a, a giant population of people that are, they're even scared to get on and do a one-time stress test and walk on the treadmill. Um, and I just, I think it's so important to be spreading the message that it's okay, no matter what level you're at, you don't have to be worried about injury. They happen to everyone. It's, it is potential to happen, but it is very, it's actually very rare for something acute like that to happen when the, the benefits 
far, far, far outweigh the risks. Um, they even, I, I actually read a study right before coming on here, just looking specifically at Olympic weightlifters. So these guys do, in my opinion, probably the more dangerous side of weightlifting. Um, not that if you do proper form that you, you can't do it without risk, but it is more dangerous because you're putting weights over your head. And it, it came back down to exactly what we were saying, where the majority, I think it was something like out of all of their injuries, um, something like 70% of their injuries were overuse, not mm. acute injury. And that's for somebody that's throwing large amount of weights over their head. And that has a high, well, not high risk, but a much higher risk, in my opinion, than moving a static load. There's a lot of data now on <clears throat> injury rates per thousand hour, I think is usually the metric for various different sports. And I think this sort of data has been accumulated on like almost anything active, different outlets of resistance training and strength training. Bodybuilding is, I find bodybuilding is probably one of the best proxies for general strength and conditioning for the general population. Uh, and I think the injury rate was something in the range of about one per 1,000 hours. And like you said, most of those injuries are still actually fairly minor ones versus big acute. Something like, I think Highland Games showed up at about eight injuries per thousand hours, which is still actually quite low. It sounds like it's ooh, comparatively high. It's ooh, low God, considering what those guys, considering what those guys yeah. do, I'd say that's pretty low. And <clears throat> there's all these cherry picked examples. You're going to see <clears throat> very high level athletes and individuals who've done it long enough at, at bleeding edge of performance and what the body can handle. You're going to get hurt doing that. There are trade-offs. I, I like to look at it as, all right, if you've got someone who loves playing hockey, hockey is their passion. They accept the risk of a few things. One, hockey players tend to live in a constant state of groin pulls. It's just like kind of a, a, a thing with them. Um, they definitely, most of the hockey players you know are missing teeth. It's almost like they just know that it's going to be a thing, right? They have a plate, whatever. Uh, yeah, River, <laughs> River really walked... River really walked away unscathed in that aspect, luckily. <laughs> right. um, concussions, right? Has River ever had any concussions from that? He hasn't had a concussion. He uh, His injuries were very much similar to the that uh, pushing out movement from skating. Um, I think when he was sprinting, he t actually tore his psoas muscle uh, completely. He had to get surgery for that. And he go. has torn his hamstring. Right. So a lot of like the hip flexor type stuff, uh, all that, like, that really common with hockey players, but someone who loves hockey and plays it understands that there's risk of injury. If you look at, you know, NHL players and certainly the kind of contracts they're, they're signing and, you know, some of the lifestyle that goes with it, they do accept some of those trade-offs. Now, I, the scary one to me is the concussion stuff. So Jen, very close uh, friend of mine. I don't know if we ever actually met, mm -hmm. but I totally know who she is. She's quite evident, uh, prominent, sorry, in the Edmonton personal training community. So Right. So Jen and I started as trainers roughly around the same time. And she moved on because she also was playing rugby for Team Canada, right? The Olympic team and became the captain. So a lot of her, the training was based out of Victoria. So anyway, but Jen has won bronze medal at Rio, but she's also now she's retired and she suffered a fairly, she's had some fairly serious hip issues uh, related to her competitive days. But she's also now coming out about her concussion issues and the, the impacts this is having on her mental health and some of the long-term implications that we're seeing here. And 
there are some really serious risk to reward trade-offs when we start talking about these kind of contact sports. Football, like the idea of playing football growing up now. I mean, I grew up in rural Newfoundland. There was no football. There's a lot of rugby there, oddly enough. But just like, I, I, I could look back and I, it's also post-rationalization and say, well, you know, I, I wasn't given the choice, therefore it's a non-issue. I also didn't play much hockey. But the reality is, what if I'd been in an environment where, I mean, I'm six foot two and currently about 260, <laughs> sorry, 250-ish. I'm, I'm the size of an NFL linebacker. I mean, a lot of people think they're like monsters. Like linebackers, I'm built like an NFL linebacker. Okay. That someone's going to argue I can, that. I can confirm that because I've seen you in real life. So, right? so <laughs> for all of those listeners like, that don't. That does not guarantee that I, a lot of people are that size. It doesn't guarantee I would have made NFL as a linebacker. But the point being is that I have the physical structure and size to have played, have advantages if I played a lot of hockey at a very young age, football, you name it, what have you, right? Rugby, any of these things. So it's easy to post-rationalize. Well, I never lean into those things. I played basketball, cross-country skiing, a few other things. So all good. But part of me is kind of glad that I never got faced with those choices. And I look back and go, wow, I don't have a history of concussions because I got to play these things at a high level. But I think for a lot of people, you know, it's, it's a no brainer. They, they love these sports. So to summarize this, I, I think it does just come down to risk versus reward, what you enjoy. And if you really love something as a passion, like you look at Olympic lifters or CrossFitters, a great example, CrossFit by reputation, People love to criticize it and think there's higher injury rates. Uh, the research doesn't bear that out. It just doesn't, right? Uh, but even still, let I, I know CrossFitters, people who uh, I used to do CrossFit, who do say, yeah, they accumulated injuries and they found that, that that structure and that community of just go, 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 where form may be compromised, where you just continue to do things for time. Is that an injurious environment? It can be for some individuals, especially if there's injury history, like we talked about. So, but for some of those people, the trade-off is like, no, I really love the experience of CrossFit. I like being part of that community. Community is always one of the big draws and why CrossFit actually has worked so well as a, as a training modality. So you just have to ask yourself, what risks am I willing to accept? And if you say, well, I don't want to accept any risk. We just talked about that. Misery is the other, like the risk of doing nothing is abject misery and unhealth, right? Metabolic unhealth, mental unhealth. And it's not one-to-one. -one. It's like going to the gym does not guarantee me metabolic health. That does not guarantee mental health. But I also get a little tired of the pedantic grift that some people in our industry get on when they, when they soften the blow about this stuff. It's like, guess what? We know that there's a massive long-term relationship between healthy nutrition, regular exercise, resistance training, you know, metabolic training and increased likelihoods of good health outcomes, reduced risk of heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, and some other you know, dementias, neurodegenerative diseases. I'm willing to accept the fact that I could get hurt in the gym through no fault of my own doing good form. But if I don't do something active, maybe it's rucking, maybe it's walking with weighted packs, which is probably the best thing for bone mineral density you can get. What's on the other side of bone mineral density? People who poor nutrition, totally inactive, and you know you risk like a, a slip and fall, especially if you get in your fifties or sixties or onward, and you got broken wrists, you got broken femurs, you whatever. And if you suffer, you know I think it's like certainly over the age of sixty, if you suffer a major fracture like a femur or a or a hip <laughs> or a hip, 
your quality of life is going to be destroyed. I, and I, I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but it's going to have an, a massive negative impact. Anything you were doing active that was helping maintain your your mental health, your ability to be a social, go out and do normal things is severely compromised short term. And there, I can't remember the exact statistic, but there's a fair for people who don't die from a fall injury, which it happens. Um, there's a, a pretty a, a, a nasty, scary enough number percentage of those people end up dying within the first year of that break and fall injury. So how do we prevent that? Motor skill, right? So resistance training, we're talking about skills. Actually having the motor skills is actually going to be helpful in the case of slip and falls. Strong bones, more muscle mass, is more insulation against a fall, right? And again, strong, better coordination, balance skill, movement skill. Those things mean you're on average a little bit less likely to fall, or you may fall in a way that you actually can like brace and recover versus like shatter something. So, I mean, anybody who's listening to this is, we're preaching to the choir. You're the converted, you know this stuff. But maybe, here's a cool thing. There probably is someone in your world who you want to get active, who may be a little bit fearful about the gym. Maybe they're a little intimidated by the gym. Uh, this is how you help Haley grow this podcast. Share this, take this, send it to them and go, here, this is a really great episode. It talks about this, this, and this. I enjoy this. This is how you give. This is how you support. This is how you get this to grow. So that way Haley is able to reach and help more people. And then you're giving a gift for free, just their time, uh, to someone else who may be thinking about it. Maybe it's on the edge. Maybe it's a little wake-up call that you know that they need. And it, then those people can reach out to either of us if they have questions. Okay, Haley's going to have resources to get those people started. Totally. Um, yeah. Thanks for that, Andrew. I, again, just being on as a paramedic, I see those hip injuries all the time. And again, um, I think just that demographic right now, um, it's nice. The younger uh, demographic coming in is more, I, I feel like a little bit more educated with weight training, et cetera. But that demographic right now that's going through the falling, breaking of the hip, um, maybe that aren't necessarily like the Larry's of the world that maybe haven't been discovered by you or a trainer that can motivate them to get out there and train those different lateral movements, um, increase their bone density. Those are the people that are are really suffering from, from that. And it is a massive statistic. I can't remember it either, but your mortality in the first year of getting a hip fracture, they always preach this to us in paramedic school is massive and people don't think about it at all. Um, yeah. So it is something to touch on and, and something that you can definitely share with somebody that's well, anyone, any age demographic exercise is better for, but especially I find that one it's where it's missing quite a bit. Um, I just want to wrap it up with one more question. Um, you and I have always been very big into kind of more of an empirical, um, empirical knowledge base. And even just talking to you today, you can see how much information that you have that you've read about um, from verified sources. And I think on Instagram and stuff right now, I know whenever I do a post or anything like that, I want to make sure that it's it has some merit to it, not from just me seeing it on someone else's Instagram or just my day-to-day -day knowledge as a human being. Do you have any advice for our listeners about finding valid information, searching it out? Um, and do you have any great resources other than your, or actually, why don't you provide your resources? So tricky one, but I think it does take the willingness to research, explore. It takes being 
more than a little aware of your, your biases. And then the human urge to want to hear simple solutions to complex problems. If you hear someone say that, oh, um, carbs and insulin are the reason why people are fat, calories don't matter. Okay, that can sound really refreshing because we've struggled to lose the weight, keep body fat off. And so here we are presented with this easy answer to go, all right, if I just cut carbs out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be fine. Well, first of all, that's actually not what the research supports. When you equate for calories and protein, you know, people who do low carb diets versus other interventions that reduce calories. Uh, same thing for intermittent fasting, keto, which is a type of low carb. Um, as long as the calories, as long as the protein are equated, the results are the same. Now, that's one aspect of it. People don't live in a perfectly controlled study. People are human and they have cravings and they have this psychological aspect of it. So we have to also take into consideration what will actually work and what's sustainable. So if you, if you are at least acutely aware of that, then maybe you can question the stuff you're hearing. You hear people like the liver king. It's our industry loves to say, oh, oh my God, like we know, like how could anybody believe the liver king's not on steroids, right? When he says he's natural and then gets busted for $10,000 worth of steroids per month, right? But it's, it's, we, then it shows that we're out of touch with the general population that for a very long time grew up on pro wrestling, Hulk Hogan, Randy, the macho man, savage, Yaddle, ultimate warrior. And I was a kid, I wasn't like thinking these kids, these guys were on steroids. I mean, it's not a big shock later on in life or, or, you know, our baseball heroes like Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds for the, for those community or various other athletes over the years who've been busted for this stuff. Right. So we got to remember the general population. A lot of those people still think no hate, no, no shade to the rock, but a lot of people think that maybe the rock is, is natural. Yes. A man in his fifties has that level of muscularity and leanness. No, that, that's not natural. Like, but I don't care. I don't give a shit about Arnold and my Hollywood heroes. I like <laughs> these big, larger than life Jack monsters on. I, I prefer this to the Twilight vampires. I just do. Like, it's a cliche thing, but like, give me John McClane and and Rambo any day, right? Over, over yeah, that. Yeah, I'll, I'll join you on that one. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> right? Give me Thor, you know, give me Captain America, all that sort of stuff. Okay. So, Side tangent over. Um, some of the best resources. I I think when you find people who have a really great ability to communicate, you know, research based, mean the helpful information, but can really speak to the the end user. I think Jordan Syatt may be one of the ultimate people at that. Jordan has been one of my favorites for a long time. He's a great friend. Uh, if you want to go a little bit higher level into people who are a bit more in the research, who are pretty good communicators, sometimes. Lane Norton gets a little bombastic, but I love Lane. Lane's great, but Lane is going to be a really good evidence-based resource for nutrition. He can be a little bit abrasive at times. It's Lane. Um, I love the guys at, uh, and girls at RP, Renaissance Periodization, Dr. Mike Isertel, Nick Shaw, Dr. Crystal Guevara, Dr. Mel Davis, et cetera. Like a really amazing team. They make tons and tons of stuff that very good on the nutrition side, very good on training stuff. If you really want to get into the injury side of stuff, there are uh, a handful of physical therapists that I find are really good at this. Dr. Sam Spinelli, he's a friend. He was one of my speakers at my event here in October. Sam has got a really nuanced way of communicating this stuff. Uh, if you want something that's a bit more irascible and bombastic, you can go into uh, Adam Meekins. He's a British physical therapist that's usually at war with the industry at a given time, calling out bad practices. He's very much into research, and uh, he's quite entertaining if you if you do like that. So. 
if you're looking for something specific, there, there are so many people. Nutrition, you could go with Adam Bornstein. Adam Bornstein is LeBron James, Lindsey Vaughn, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's longtime nutrition coach. He's a great guy. Wrote a book recently called You Can't Screw This Up, one of my favorite resources. Ben Carpenter, he's got a new book on evidence-based fat loss. And he's always fighting this battle because he doesn't promote fat loss, but he wants to have an evidence-based resource for the people who want to lose body fat. Jordan Syed's book, Eat It, great book when it comes to mainstream nutrition. There are plenty more. So any of these people I think are good. And once you get a taste for, and I'd even go into the strength and conditioning people, but once you get a taste for who is credible, I mean, there's not a single person even I've listed that I agree with 100% in everything they say. Literally, there are things that some of them have, like, um, uh, we'll say Adam Meekins. He was going after someone, a strength coach in the industry. And I thought Adam was a bit off base and being pedantic and just going to war over something I thought was silly. But I love Adam and I will refer people to go and follow his content because we need to have the critical thinking skills to go, okay, does that make sense? And again, these are people in those domains are more well-educated than I am. So it's a little bit odd for me to turn around and say, hey, I'm questioning what this PhD in this particular thing is saying. But again, uh, expose yourself to a robust array of really smart people that resonate with you. Keep an open mind. Don't get dogmatic and ask people. There's a layer of people like you who they're listening to right now who they trust because they know you're evidence-based and you're going to be able to point them to other resources if they want. And that's the best thing is just literally ask someone you trust for trustworthy resources. There, done. I really liked what you said when you said, uh, does this make sense? I think that... Uh, just being able to look at a fact if if somebody's giving you a a pill or saying you know like this workout program is going to reset your hormones just take a step back and say you know does this make sense i could talk to you for for hours about this stuff it's so interesting to me i, I love it but um i guess we'll just finish off can you just give your instagram and i i'll put all this stuff in the show notes as well but sure. your instagram and maybe your website or the best way that people can reach you i know you're very prominent figure on social media here so it's it's nice for people Which to, is to reach out very weird and surreal but i appreciate that people <laughs> show up for this sort of thing um instagram at andrew coats fitness so i respond to all messages there um so i'm happy to answer questions uh, my website www.andrewcoatsfitness.com. I've got to start writing some more articles again for my website because the public speaking has been so crazy that writing stuff for my own website's fallen on the by the wayside. But if you're looking for something, you can message me on Instagram. You can check out my website. It's all there. So happy to help. And that wraps up another episode of the 8020 podcast. A huge thank you to our incredible guests who bring the expertise and insights to the table every time. They're the real MVPs of the 8020 podcast. If you loved what you heard today, hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And hey, if you have any burning questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please reach out. Remember, health and fitness are journeys, not destinations. So whether you're hitting the gym, going for a run, or just taking a moment to stretch, keep that 8020 balance in mind. As we sign off, stay fit, stay focused, and keep that smile on your face. This is Coach Haley signing out from the 8020 podcast. Until next time.